1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath. To come. Now, last week we saw that Paul was thanking God that their response to his preaching the gospel was real because of the evidence of their faith, hope, and love, even in the midst of severe persecution. But some of you might not have noticed that in these verses, Paul is also showing the validity of his ministry among them since his arriving there was because of false accusations in other areas and also because often after Paul left an area, false prophets would come in and badmouth Paul in the hopes of discrediting him. So we're going to take a little bit of time to kind of catch you back up with our introduction a couple of weeks ago to remind you of how Paul ended up in Thessalonica and why. But if and I'm going to tell you briefly and then show it to you in the book of Acts. You want to go ahead and start turning to Acts 17. You can. But if you remember, Paul came to Thessalonica because he had been chased out of Philippi. And when he got to Thessalonica, he began to preach and things started to happen. And then the Thessalonians, the people of Thessalonica, they actually, some of the Jews got really upset and chased him out of Thessalonica. And he went on to Berea. And then when he got to Berea, some of those guys left Thessalonica and went to Berea to chase him out of there. And he went on to Athens. And so Paul, I don't know if you caught it or not in this intro, and we're going to see it a lot more as we get into chapter two and so on. He's actually defending the validity of his ministry a little bit because of all the attacks that he had and the people that came in after him and accused him of preaching the gospel for wrong motives. Go to Acts 17 and look at verses 1 through 15. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul as, and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, the, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, many of them therefore believed with, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So if you, if you remember, he was in Philippi, cast the demons out of these girls, and because of that, he got beaten, thrown in the inner cell in stocks, and as you know, the jailer and his family get saved, but the magistrates come from Philippi and they say, look, would you guys please leave this area? They went back, said goodbye to the church, headed on. They end up in Thessalonica. They begin sharing the gospel there. Some people start to believe, but then the Jews who are upset about this, they accuse Paul and these guys of preaching politics. They're here. They're trying to get everybody to say that there's no, uh, that, that Caesar's not the king, but there's another king named Jesus. And if you know, Paul wasn't there to talk about politics. He was there to bring people to Jesus and to come to saving faith and that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of the scriptures. And so they chased him out of Thessalonica. He ends up in Berea. The Bereans actually are checking everything that Paul says against the scripture and they come to faith. And then the Thessalonians, these Jews, they caused a problem in Thessalonica. They run down to Berea, chase him out there. So everywhere Paul goes, he's ending up there because he had just been chased out of another town. And then after he leaves, people badmouth him afterwards. Imagine the fact that Paul is now dealing with that everywhere he goes, people are questioning whether he's legit. I mean, why did you end up here? Well, they chased me out of that other place. Well, why'd they chase that, you out of that other place? If you're a good guy, maybe you're a bad guy. And then after he leaves, people come in after him and badmouth Paul. Actually, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul even talks about that. He said, you know what? He goes, there are some people that preach Christ for the right motives. Other people are preaching Christ because they want to make me look bad. He says, but either way, Christ is being preached. Now go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 again and look at it again at verses 4 and 5. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Jump over to chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 8. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive all things he was being accused of. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, 
Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So as you can see, as he's saying, writing this letter to this church and saying, look, Timothy just came back and told us how you have made it. You actually, your faith was real and you do love us. That's a great thing. Yet in it, he's still reminding them, there's a lot of stuff people are saying about me, but it's not true. And you guys know how we were there with you. We're not going to have you turn there, but in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul is meeting with the elders of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. They're all meeting in a town called Miletus, and he, he has them meet him there as he's on his way through. It's, it's kind of, I'll be honest with you, I have the joy of living a life very similar to Paul's, because next week when I'm going to be traveling, I'm going to be hitting a church that I've spoken at a couple of times already, encouraging pastors and people there that I've met. And then on the way back, I'm going to be going through an area, speaking at another church that I've been to a bunch and working with the pastor there and actually getting excited because he and his wife had just had a baby. They've been wanting to have a child for years and years and years. And right as they're thinking about adoption, they got pregnant after a long, long time. And I get to go see their little girl and I can't wait to see her. Oh, and while I'm there, I also know of some other people that are nearby. And I made phone calls today and said, hey, I'm going to be in the area. Could you meet me? And I'm going to meeting with a couple meet with a couple other pastors, one from Jacksonville, another one from another area. And we're going to meet together in areas. And Paul would do that. And so as he's meeting with the Ephesian elders in Miletus, he said, by the way, I know that after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in from among your own number to lead disciples after them. That'll be important later on in our study. That They're going to try to get you to follow them. So Paul, in his ministry, being from God, even though it was from God, he lived continually with attacks on him, his message, and his character. I don't know if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, but Paul's dealing a lot with that in the book of 1 Corinthians, how people are questioning whether or not he's really even an apostle. But Paul also continued on in faithfulness and perseverance to do what God had called him to do because he knew a few things that would help us to persevere. And so I'm going to give you three things from the scriptures that Paul knows and knew that helped him keep going, even though he was being attacked by people. Well, let me just, before we go there, ask you a question. Are there those who question whether or not you're, in, whether or not you're sane because of your faith in Christ? You might have family members. You might have people against you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. How did Paul keep going with all these severe attacks? There's three things that I'm going to show you from the scriptures that I came to see as I was kind of praying through this. God all of a sudden opened my eyes and said, there's three things that Paul knew and we need to know them too. Here's number one. He had done the exact same things. Do you remember how we read how that wherever Paul went, people went and they were accusing him and wherever they went somewhere, else, he, they went to the next town too. That kind of sounds familiar. If you don't know, let me kind of remind you about Paul himself. Go to 1 Timothy. You're in 1 Thessalonians. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at verses 12 through 17. One of the things that Paul remembered was he was one of those people too. One of those rabble rousers. He says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy 
because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Oh, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul said, I used to be one of those people. I'm going to be faithful to keep going because as bad as these people look, God showed mercy to me. And I'm going to pray for God to show mercy to them. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Look at verses 10 through 24. Think about how hard it must have been for Paul to start preaching in the same churches he used to try to kill. Galatians chapter 1, look at verses 10 through 24. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. No, for I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism before, beyond many of my own age and among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Folks, let me remind you, if you have people that question your motives, question your sanity, question you for whatever reason because of your faith in Christ, you too used to be one of those people. You know, we're none of us were born Christian. We were not born believers. We were born dead. If, if someone ever says to me, well, I've been a Christian my whole life. I've been a Christian ever since I was, a, I was born. I say to them, you might want to double check because the Bible actually says there's a point where we pass from death to life. You can't be born a Christian. There has to be a point where you're regenerated. And Paul knew he used to be one of those people. And that helped him keep going. And that leads to the second thing. Number two, he also knew that his battle was not really with those people. But his battle was with the spiritual forces of evil. Remember Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Who do we really wrestle against? We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan and his minions. 
me show you something that kind of cool that happened on one of my plane flights this weekend. I actually went up and preached in Detroit three, time, three t different messages at a men's conference and at another church. And then Monday I flew home. And on the way, to, if you're going to fly southwest to Detroit, you got to go from Orlando to Baltimore, Baltimore to Detroit, Detroit back to Baltimore, Baltimore back to Orlando. So on one of my flights, well, I'm just going to tell you ahead of time, I don't get on the plane looking to share the gospel with somebody. I get on the plane to sleep. I live a busy life and those plane flights, I've been gifted by God and I choose Southwest because I can pick my seat and I want a window. I make sure I've gotten my bathroom stops all taken care of because I don't want to make anybody get up and I'm going straight for that window. You know why? Because I get on the plane, I can put my head against the window and I'm out before they make the announcement about the safety procedures. Before the plane leaves the gate, I'm gone. But on one of the flights, I think it was the one from Detroit to Baltimore, a lady, and all, all, of our, all of the flights were packed. Everyone was full. A lady asks if she could sit between me and the guy on the aisle in the middle seat. And I said, sure. And as I put my head back against the window, I start to notice she's got a book in her lap. I kind of peek over at the book, and on the top right-hand page, it says, Second Seal Red Horse. She's reading a book on the book of Revelation. We hadn't even buckled yet, hardly. And I said, uh, is that a book on Revelation? And she flips the, pay, the cover and shows me. And she said, yeah, it's written by a guy named Dr. David Jeremiah. It's called What Will Happen After the Rapture. I said, that's a good book. She goes, you know about it? I go, actually, I've written a book on Revelation myself. You have? And we got talking. And I may end up preaching in Connecticut because of this, but that's where she was heading next. But let me tell you, as we went and talked about the book of Revelation and so on, later in the flight, she asked me, goes, can I ask you a question? I go, what's that? She goes, how come the world hates the Jews? I said, the world doesn't hate the Jews. She goes, no, no, they really does. The world really hates the Jews. And the Bible even talks about everybody, all the nations are going to be against Israel. I said, listen again, the world doesn't hate the Jews. They really hate the God of the Jews. Because really what's going on is there's a battle going on in the spiritual realm that's bigger than just the nations. Actually, Jesus himself said, um, if the world hates you, realize they're not really hating you, they're hating me. And they hate you because you're related to me. I said, you know, the Bible's real clear that Jesus is coming back and you've been reading prophecy and studying it and you know this. Jesus is coming back and he's going to set up his kingdom in Israel. Well, the Bible also says that there needs to be a nation of Israel there for the Antichrist to chase out of the land. And there, all these things have to be happening in temples and stuff like that. And I said, and Satan is trying his hardest to remove the nation of Israel, because if there is no nation, then Jesus can't come back. The world doesn't hate the Jews. It's Satan and his world system and his minions that hate the Jews, but they really hate Jesus. And folks, I want you to understand something. When you got people against you, you want to focus on that individual. Remember, Paul remembered he used to be one of those people. He used to be empowered by the enemy. But God was merciful and showed him grace. And he also now doesn't look at those people as jerks. How come they're treating me so bad? He understands who's really talking. You remember when Jesus said, I'm going to the cross and they're going to kill me? Peter said, the Bible says Peter rebuked him. 
No way, Lord, I'm not going to let that happen. And what did Jesus say? He said, get behind me, Satan. He knew who was really speaking through Peter. Do you understand? And folks, that will help you. Keep doing what God wants you to do. Keep living the Christian life. Keep proclaiming the truth of the gospel. But don't forget you used to be a lost person too, but by God's mercy, you got saved. And don't ever think that it's these people that are against you that are the issue. It's what's going on behind and through them. Now, they'll be accountable for what they do if they don't surrender to God's grace. But that's, whose job is it to mete out justice? Vengeance. That's God's. You used to be one of those people. Paul remembered that. And he also understood that this was, a, this was a spiritual battle. And thirdly, because of this, he kept his eyes on God to please God, not man. Because he knew he needed God's power and that God and God only would be his judge. We're not going to have you turn there, but if you were to go look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20... Paul talks about how we need the armor of God in order to fight this battle against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We need God's battle armor, but not our own strength. You can't do it. You submit yourself, therefore, to God. You resist the devil and he leaves. But he doesn't leave because of you. He leaves because of God. And Paul understood that if he took his eyes off of God and put them back on man, he would try to fight in man's ways with man's power and he'd lose. And that he kept his eyes on God. So that he would have God's power. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because there's something here that I want you to see. It's subtle. But without realizing it, we all want to please man. Instead of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 5. Again, Paul is dealing with questions about his motives and questions about his apostleship. And this is what he says here in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Look at what he says in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in our study tonight, but let me just say this to you. We all have a tendency to try to please man, and we try to please man in many ways. And sometimes we're more concerned about what man may think of us than God when it comes to sharing the things that he wants us to share. We all have had it, including us preachers. We're worried about how it will be received, whether or not they're going to like it, whether or not they're going to like us. And on top of that, there's another layer to this that God began to open my eyes to. We have a tendency as Christians to try to follow man instead of God. I've run into many people say, well, I only follow the teachings of so-and-so. And you check everything that you hear against the teaching of your favorite teacher. I'm going to warn you, don't do that. Because actually, you may even like my teaching, but I'm, I'm human still. I'm still growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have it all figured out. 
The things I share with you are things that God's been showing me as I continue to study. And there are some people that just say, I just follow so-and-so. And if you go back and look at 1 Corinthians, Paul spends his first chapters to say, don't do that. Some say, well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Christ. No. There's value in learning from a multitude of teachers. But honestly, you have to check everything all of us say against the scriptures. Remember how the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians? What did they do? They even checked what Apostle Paul said against the word of God. And don't be a man pleaser and a man follower. Be someone who follows God and check everything against the scriptures. You raised your hand. Did you want to say something? I answered it. Good deal. All right. But now I'm going to show you a couple of things here that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Go back to 1 Thessalonians. That almost seem to contradict what I just said. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul encourages them to imitate him and Silas and Timothy as they kept their eyes on God and not man. But wait a minute, Jim. Didn't you just say, don't be a man follower? And Paul says, you imitate us, and that's a good thing? Well, I'm going to show you a couple more verses that seem to go against what I just said in just a second. Go to Philippians 4 real quick. Go to Philippians chapter 4, and then I'll show you the scriptures that actually ties it all together. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, gentleness, some translations say, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Jim, that even more looks like it goes against everything you're saying. Paul's saying, whatever you see me do and whatever I've done, I've said, you put that into practice and you'll be a good Christian. You just be a Paulite. Is that what Paul's saying? No. Let me show you one more verse and then we're going to go back in our minds to the scriptures we just read and show how Paul was not saying, follow me. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul was never saying, you just do what I say, you be my follower, and you'll be okay with God. No, Paul was saying, I live my life following God, not pleasing man, with my eyes on God. And if you do the same thing, do you see it? You'll be fine. You want to imitate me? Keep your eyes on God. That's why he said in that passage, rejoice in my teachings. Rejoice in Paul's theology or Paul's doctrine or Paul's system or Paul's program or Paul's seven steps to the Christian life. No, he said rejoice in who? The Lord. 
If you get prayer requests and supplications, make them known to me, Paul. Write me a letter and I'll answer all your questions. No, you make them to God. The God of peace will fill your hearts. When he says, you, whatever you've heard from me and seen in me, you put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. He was saying, I live my life not looking this way, but looking this way. You do the same. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul said, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Listen, so that we'll no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful schemes. But we will all grow up into him who is the head. A true person that you can imitate is someone that follows Jesus themselves and teaches you to follow Jesus through the word of God, checking everything against the word of God, because there's lots of bad spirits out there. That's why in first John chapter four, verse one, it says, test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. And so, folks, Paul was simply saying, as I follow Christ, imitate me and you follow Christ. By the way, did you notice in that passage I quoted to you from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, so that we'll no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching? Have you ever noticed in our churches that nowadays you can't really judge a church by the label on their sign anymore? You used to be able to know, oh, that's a Lutheran church. I know their doctrine. That's a Methodist church. I know their doctrine. Oh, that's a Baptist church. I know their doctrine. But you know what? Nowadays, churches are taking on the doctrine of their pastor. And everybody follows the pastor. And whatever the new pastor comes in and says, everybody goes, well, that's what we believe now. And then the next guy comes in and says, well, I actually see it a little bit differently. Everybody's like, okay, that's what we believe now. And we're getting tossed to and fro by all these teachers out there because we haven't been taught how to grow up into him who is the head. Folks, I hope none of you stand before God and say, I tried to do everything Jim said, Lord. I can tell you this much, as much as I can honestly tell you, as much as I, I don't fully examine myself because God knows my heart, but in my heart, I really believe that my desire has never been to have you follow my teaching, but to have you follow Jesus. And Paul was not a man pleaser. He wanted to please God. He also encouraged them that God was already using their faith as a testimony to others in the areas of Macedonia and Achaia. That's Greece. Go to 1 Thessalonians 1 again. Look at verses 7 through 10. They were already becoming a testimony themselves. Paul wasn't just saying, follow me as I follow Christ. He was saying, you're actually becoming an example now. Look at verse 7. So you also became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't even need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We too often think that God can only use preachers to spread his message. A lot of you, whether you want to admit it or not, you subconsciously think that I could do a better job of sharing the gospel with somebody than you could. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but if you're honest with yourself, deep down, you think I'd do a better job. See, that means you think the power is in the person. 
Actually, I'm going to show you the Bible, first of all, says that the power is in the message, not in the one who preaches it. Second of all, I actually have come to realize from the scriptures that the word of God has more power when it's not preached by the professionals. Years ago, I was pastor of First Baptist in the Atlantic. And God was teaching me that I'm supposed to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And there was a man in the church who led a young man named Tim to the Lord. And when Tim got saved, the church was excited. We watched his baptism and we watched Tim start to grow in his faith. But just a few months after Tim got saved, Tim died in his 20s of a seizure. And when it was time for Tim's funeral, even though we had four pastors on staff, the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, I want Gary, the one who led him to the Lord, to preach his funeral. By the way, Gary at the time worked for the IRS. He wasn't a preacher. He was a tax collector. The worst sinners there are. But listen, at the funeral, seven young people got saved. I got mad. I haven't had seven people get saved when I preach. Oh, and on top of that, I got a phone call from the funeral director the next week. He said, Jim, I heard the gospel at the funeral when Gary preached. I said, you've been to a bunch of my funerals. I preach the gospel. This is what he said. He said, but you're getting paid to say it. And because you're getting paid to say it, I've tuned it out. I've seen lots of professional ministers. I've seen lots of preachers who just go through the motives. I mean, go through the motions and their motives aren't pure. They're just getting the honorarium check. And they know how to say certain things. I've heard the same sermon over and over because preachers just preach the same old thing. And he goes, Jim, you are getting paid to say it. But I sat there in the back in the foyer listening because Gary wasn't being paid to say it. It had more power when it was taken out of the preacher's hands. It's a little humbling, isn't it? Yeah. Well, by the way, isn't my job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry? Go to John chapter 4. Look at verses 21 through 30. Jesus has been in conversation with the woman at the well here in Samaria. In John chapter 4, verses 21 through 30... Back up to verse 19. This kind of helps with this as well. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, keep reading. 
Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, this all started because the woman was parroting the things that their preachers had said. Our religious leaders tell us we have to worship here. Your religious leaders say you have to worship there. Jesus said, let me tell you something. Stop following man and follow God. The true worshipers are he's looking for, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. She says, yeah, well, I just know that one day when Messiah comes, he's going to explain all things to us. Don't miss this, folks. The first person we have recorded in the scriptures that Jesus ever revealed that he was the Messiah. Now, he's asked later on, are you the Christ? And he says, you say so. What he was saying was the fact that you're treating me the way you're treating me is proof that you're saying that I'm the Messiah because you're fulfilling prophecies right now. But this woman, he didn't get cloudy about it. The first person he revealed that he was the Messiah was a woman. And he said to her, I who speak to you am he. She goes into the town. Listen closely. She said, come and see this guy. I think I might have found the Christ. Let me tell you what he did in my life. Does she have full understanding? Not even close. But she was willing to share what God had done in her life. Jump down now to verse 39. Now, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me, told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. I love this. This woman, a cast out uh, a lady that wasn't even accepted in her society actually goes and tells people and they're like, you know what? We want to listen to that for some reason. And they go and find Jesus themselves. And they said they had believed because of what she said, but they even believed more now that they met him for themselves. You know what excites me is that when people say, Jim, I'm going to check what you just said. And I think I believe you, but I want to check it for myself. And then you come to find out, you know what? What you said was real. Oh, and let me show you the other stuff God's been showing me. That fires me up. When you don't just come back and say, hey, Jim, you were right, Jim, you were right. You then say, and did you ever see this? Look at what Jesus says here. That, that lights my fire, folks. Because I love it when people come up after a sermon and say, you know what? I really thank God for your message today. Uh, God showed me this during your sermon. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't even talk about that. I was preaching on something over here. And you heard God speak to you, and it wasn't through me. Because I was talking about X, and you heard Z. I love that. I love that. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Paul, remember, this is all coming because Paul's reminding them, or just letting them know, hey, your testimony is spreading. 
Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Would we not agree we're in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, Jesus said you're the light of the world. He didn't say only the preachers are the light of the world. Only the Sunday school teachers are the light of the world. He says you are. Folks, I can't stress this enough, and I pray I'm not stepping over the Holy Spirit's role, into the Holy Spirit's role. But let me just say this to you. The power of God will be released even more when the church stops expecting the preachers to share the word of God. When you just share what he's shown you. You know what the Bible says in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 13. Remember how the apostles were standing before the Sanhedrin and what did the Sanhedrin say afterwards? These are just ordinary men. They're unlearned. They're ignorant. And they took note that they had been with Christ. We actually hurt the spread of the gospel by leaving it to the preachers. Do you also realize that if you just left it to the preachers, that really cuts down the number of witnesses Tremendously, does it not? Stop thinking someone needs to be saved. I'm going to call the preacher. Someone's sick. I'm going to call the preacher. Somebody's in need. I'm going to call the church. And first say, Lord, is this something you've brought across my path because it's something you want me to do? And let him lead you. Let him guide you. Let him show you. By the way, Paul, even though he didn't need to, Remember, he didn't need to testify about him, he said. He still used these believers as an encouragement to other believers in his preaching. Go to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verses 3 and 4. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul says, we don't need to, verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, we don't need to say anything because word's already spreading, but we still brag on you. Actually, we brag on God through what he's been allowed to do through you. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. I actually do the same thing. You may not know it, but in my travels, when I see churches and individuals let God use them and they submit to what he has and they walk in faith and God's power is revealed, I use that as testimonies to other churches that I'm helping to encourage because it encourages us to know that there are others who are actually doing it. We hear lots of stories about churches that are a mess, don't we? We hear lots of stories about churches that are fighting with each other and all having these problems. We got plenty of those. Those are not really encouraging, are they? They're more discouraging, grieving. But you know what? When you hear stories about churches that are really doing well, it's an encouragement unless you've got a problem and you're jealous because their church is doing well and yours is not. Well, that's another whole issue. So you know what I do when I go around? 
I actually tell stories about churches. By the way, I have people in this area who come into the area and they'll say, hey, you got any churches you recommend? Because as you know, when I'm out there, people are going to find out who I am and what I believe right away on the golf course, wherever I am. And a lot of times people will say, hey, I'm looking for a good church. And I'm going to tell you right now, I recommend LifePoint a lot of times. I'm not going to list all the churches I recommend, but there's three or four in the area that I recommend. I don't say, well, avoid this one or avoid that one. That doesn't do any good. But I do encourage people, and LifePoint is one that I recommend people to come to. Now, I'm going to brag on another church in this area. Some of you know this, but most of you probably don't. Y'all know that First Baptist Melbourne is actually in the middle of a building program, a multi-million dollar building program, and it's behind schedule as all building programs are. But a lot of you may not know this. At the end of last year, their giving was well beyond their budget. Well beyond their budget. Generous church. And the human temptation would be to take the surplus and put it toward your debt. But the pastors prayed and did not feel that that's what God wanted them to do. And even though they have a multi-million dollar debt and they had a huge chunk of thousands, tens of thousands of dollars that they could put toward the debt, they felt God wanted them to write $10,000 checks to other churches in the area, and they did. In the midst of their building program, when they could use the money to pay off their debt, they actually shared with other churches. Isn't that cool? Oh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I just did what Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He just happened to use the Macedonian churches, which is Thessalonians is one of them, as his example instead of me using 1 Melbourne. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 5. He goes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Where's Thessalonica? It's in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Isn't that cool? They gave to the church and to the Lord, and then they gave money to us to go help the churches in Jerusalem. Paul's dealing with the church in Corinth because they had promised to make a love offering and it was going to be collected and they're going to take it to the Jews in Jerusalem who were suffering persecution and lost their jobs and everything. And as Paul's writing to them to say, hey, I'm sending so-and-so to collect that offering and don't make you guys look bad and me look bad because I've already told the churches in Jerusalem that you guys are going to give them a good gift. And he says, uh, um, let me give you an encouragement. The churches in Macedonia who didn't even have much money because of the suffering they're going through, they gave first to their churches and then they gave to the Lord. And I just want to tell you, that's an encouragement. Be encouraged by them. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves, the people that have heard about the Macedonian church, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
Number one, they turned from their idols to serve who? The living and true God. They had believed in gods. They had believed in gods and idols, but those were all dead. Oh, by the way, doesn't the Bible say that we're to turn from repentance to dead works? The Jews actually had their idols. It was the law. Their faith was in the law to make them righteous before God, and which is dead. But also this word turned is a picture of repentance. Go to Acts chapter 3 real quick. Look at verses 17 through 19. We got 10 minutes left. We're going we're gonna to make it. I was wondering halfway through tonight if we were going to make it, but we're going to make it. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And thank you, Lord, the power stayed on. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Oh, you of little faith, Janie. Acts chapter 3, look at verses 17 through 19. Paul says, And now, brothers, I, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ or his Messiah would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The word turned is a picture of repentance. Folks, if there's not repentance and a turning, we talked about this last week, if you remember. They turned from ser serving idols to serve God. And we talk about a lot of people that say, well, I believe in Jesus and I know I'm going to heaven because I believe in Jesus. If there's no turning from sin, that's not real faith. Saying you believe is not enough to get you to heaven. There has to be an evidence of conversion. And one of the things is repentance. It is an actual desire to turn away from sin and toward God. Does that mean that once we turn to God from sin, we never sin again? And we, No, no, no. We still struggle. We still wrestle. But if you're grieved by it when it happens, that's an evidence of your salvation. If you think it's okay. I heard a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm saved, but there's a couple things that I'm still holding on to. Well, you might want to double check. There's things I still do. But I don't hold on to them. I'll tell you that. They still, they attack me every now and then. And praise God, by his grace, I'm learning to have more and more victory. Yet at the same time, I ain't holding on to any of them. Go to Acts chapter 20. I may pick it up every now and then. And God lovingly taps me on the shoulder and says, I love you. Put that down. Acts 20, verses 17 through 21. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of what? Repentance toward God and faith, of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They turned from dead idols, things that could not save them, to the living and the true God. You know in Luke 24, we're not going to have you turn there, the women go to the, uh, the tomb to find Jesus. And the angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. But don't miss the fact that we turn not only from our sin and repent and are grieved by it and turn to God for, thanks, uh, for salvation, but we also 
turn to him to serve him. Our life is no longer ours. It's whatever he wants now. But we've been taught in Christianity in America, especially that Christianity means now that you're a Christian, just ask God to bless you and give you all your dreams and all the things you want. And you can be rich and healthy. And no, no, no. Jesus said, unless you're willing to forsake everything, you can't be my disciple. Unless you're willing to take up your cross daily and just follow me. I get to call the shots. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 15 says we no longer live for ourselves. But we live for the one who died for us and rose again. Folks, I want to I, I encourage you as you share the good news. Don't just say, pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven. Preach the true gospel, which is a turning from sin and a faith and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, there's lots of people that claim Christianity. Lots of people who say they're Christians who do not live for God. They live for self. The Bible's full of passages that talk about that. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, one not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled, defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, do you see it? There it is again. To serve the living God. I want to encourage you. When you get up tomorrow, or don't wait. Do it tonight. Renew your mind. Offer your body as a living sacrifice and say, Lord, I got a few things I'd like. But you know what? I'm going to lay those down. What do you want to do? By the way, if you want to give some of those things back, I'll receive it. But if you take it away, I'm going to trust that it's best. Lord, my life is not to be lived for me. What do you want me to do? Oh, Lord, I may even have saved up a lot of money for retirement and I had all these plans and dreams. But you know what? You might have a different plan for me and my retirement money. What do you want me to do? I'm not going to go do things for you in hopes that it's pleasing. I'm not going to just go give my money away in hopes that you're happy. I want to serve you and I want you to show me what you want me to do. But my attitude is simply this. I don't want to be found as one of those people who live for self and claimed Christianity. I want to be a true person who says, I follow Jesus. Whatever that means. Whatever that means in your plan for my life. Oh, but they only, not only turned from their dead idols to serve the living God, they also were what? Waiting for God's Son to come from heaven Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We see all through the scriptures, folks, that while we are living for Christ down here, we're always to be mindful and looking for Jesus to come back and take us to where he is. That's how we're serving him now. We're not living for this world, but we're serving him now. But at the same time, we are at the same time looking for his return. 
John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus says, You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. Acts chapter 3. Go right back there real quick. We looked at Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 20, or 17 and 9 through 19, and just a little bit ago about repentance. But in Acts chapter 3, look at verses 17 again through 21. Peter says, I, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Turn to him and watch and wait for him to come back. Titus 2 talks about verses 11 and following, how we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of Jesus Christ. Folks, do you know the Bible doesn't teach Christians in the church age to watch for the Messiah, I mean, watch for the Antichrist? The Jews are warned in Matthew 24 to watch for the Antichrist, but Christians are not told to watch for the Antichrist because the Bible says we won't be here when the Antichrist is revealed. Yet, we're to be watching for Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, look at verse 3, 13. 1 Thessalonians 3, look at verse 13. He says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. You don't have to turn there. Paul talks about how God's going to bring with Jesus those who have already fallen asleep in him. And we who are alive are going to be caught up and go be with him and meet him in the air. And we'll go be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 talks about that as well. Folks, let me say something to you. The Bible says that we Christians are to be always living down here to serve God, not ourselves. What do you have in mind? What do you want me to do? What's your plan for my life? And then we at the same time are to be watching for his return and ready because we know we're just doing what he has for me to do. I've only done what you've asked. I've served you. Lord, I'm ready. And when he comes and the reckoning happens for all of us, we won't be afraid because we know We've lived the life he has for us. But the question that we will deal with next time we meet together, which is in two weeks, is this. Go to verse 10 again. And to wait for his son from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul expected Jesus' return in his lifetime. I don't know how many times you've ever noticed that he says, and we who are alive. We should always be ready for the imminent return of Jesus. But the Bible also says that he's going to spare us from the wrath to come. Here's the question we're going to deal with when we get back together in two weeks. Is this wrath to come, hell, and the wrath of hell, or is it the tribulation period, which is the time of God's wrath that he pours out on the earth? Is he coming to spare us from hell, or is he coming to spare us of the tribulation period along with hell? Well, I'll answer that question in two weeks. But I will give you a hint. It is both. And I'm going to prove it to you with a lot of scriptures. I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.